Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello, and welcome to episode 69 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. On today's episode, later on, Sean Mullaney will be joining us. Sean is a financial planner. Sean has a true expertise in taxation and some very unique opinions as well on some traditional investing and personal finance topics. So I'm excited to bring Sean into the podcast. But first, let's get to our review of the week. Steve Roll wrote in and left a review on Apple Podcasts. Steve wrote, the personal finance podcast you're looking for. Jesse gives the perfect mix of data-backed analysis about personal finances and conversations about how to use money and finances to build a fulfilling life. Too many podcasts only focus on the numbers and the personal finance hacks, but miss the big picture. The purpose of improving personal finances and working towards financial independence isn't to die with the biggest bank account, but to serve a life well-lived. Steve, thank you for those kind words. I'm glad the Personal Finance Podcast is hitting the right tone for you. That's certainly one of my goals. Steve, drop me a note if you hear this, and we'll get you hooked up with some cool gear from The Best Interest. Okay, now in honor of Sean Mullaney joining us, we're going to talk a little bit about taxes today. This harkens back to an article that I wrote in uh, April of 2023. A link to this article will be in the show notes. The article is called Capital Gains Taxes 101. I know, capital gains taxes. How is someone going to spend time talking about this on a podcast? It's a little bit dry, but trust me, it's an important topic. And it's inspired by something that a reader wrote in. Jennifer, who's a reader of the Best Interest blog, wrote in and she said, Jesse, after a tough tax season for me, can you offer any advice on capital gains tax planning? Should I set up a tax withholding on my taxable accounts? What general framework should people use? A fantastic question. Capital gains taxes are one of those things where I do think you're starting to cross the boundary between true DIY topics and something that you might want to consider getting expert help on. That expert help can come from a financial planner, from a CPA accountant. Maybe it's just from spending a lot of time on your own dedicated to this topic but capital gains tax planning isn't the the more casual investing or personal finance topic. So my recommendation, if you want to go read this article, is to skim through some of the headlines because some of you might be familiar with some of these topics. But essentially, the format of this article is a bunch of headlines that answer some important questions and then some details below that really dive into the answer for those particular questions. So right now, I'm going to go through some of these questions because they're all important if capital gains are something you're worried about. And we'll just go through the definitions and the answers one by one, starting with the big one. What are capital gains? A capital gain occurs when you sell an asset for more than you bought it for. A capital loss occurs when you sell an asset for less than you bought it for. Capital gains or capital losses become realized upon such a sale. Until that sale, the capital gain or loss is considered unrealized, or sometimes they're called paper gains, paper losses. So again, if I bought Apple 10 years ago and now my Apple stock is 10 times higher in price, as long as I'm still holding on to it, I have unrealized capital gains or paper gains. As soon as I sell that Apple stock, then it becomes a realized capital gains. While realized capital gains are taxed, and we're going to get into that, never forget this fact. 
Capital gains are evidence that something good happened. You profited off your investment. So while paying taxes isn't fun, capital gains are evidence that something good has happened. The next big question, how are capital gains calculated? What accounting methods are used? In their most simple form, capital gains are synonymous with profit. But three different accounting methods can be used to calculate capital gains. Now, imagine the following scenario. You buy 100 shares of stock A for $100 each. That occurs in the year 2000. Then in the year 2005, you buy 100 more shares for $150 each. And then in 2010, you buy 100 more shares, this time for $300 each. And today, the price of stock A is $400 each. And you want to sell 50 shares to you know, raise some money. You need to pay for something. So the question is, what is your capital gain? What's your profit? There are three different methods for us to calculate that. The first one is called the first in, first out method. And it assumes that you're selling your oldest shares first. So all 50 shares that we sell today would come from that original lot that we bought, which had the $100 price. That price is also called a cost basis. That's a synonym. So you might hear someone say, well, what's the cost basis of the stock? Well, that they're really asking you, what price did you buy it for? So in the first in, first out accounting method, we look at the oldest shares, which for us cost $100 each. And we're now selling them today for $400 each. That means that we have a $300 capital gain per share. Now we said in this example that we're selling 50 shares. So $300 per share times 50 shares yields a $15,000 total capital gain. The next method is called the specific share identification method. And that involves, as the name implies, identifying which specific shares are to be sold. If you wanted to, you could keep taxes low and you might sell 50 shares from your most recent 2010 purchase lot. Those were the shares that cost $300 each when we bought them. $300 each, we're now selling them for $400 each. That's a $100 capital gain per share, resulting in $5,000 total dollars in capital gains. But since I'm identifying specific shares, I need to make sure that I'm keeping excellent records. Or I could use the final method, which is called the average basis method. The average cost of these shares that I'm talking about today, if you run the math on the three lots that I discussed earlier, the three different time periods, the average cost is $183.33 per share, resulting in a capital gain of $216 and change per share, or a total of $10,800, et cetera, dollars in capital gains. Now, once that average basis method is used, all remaining unsold shares have to get reconstituted to that average cost basis. Since I'm blending everything into one pot, even though I'm only selling a fraction of my shares, I've already done the blending. And now everything that I blend together needs to get relabeled, for lack of a better term, at the cost basis, the average cost basis of, in this case, $183.33. The average cost basis method actually is generally not applicable to individual stocks. Instead, it's applied to mutual fund or ETF purchases. Just some minor details there. The important point is that there are three unique accounting methods that you can use to calculate your capital gains. And depending on your scenario and whether you want to realize a lot of gains this year, which sometimes you do actually want to realize a lot of gains in a particular year, other times you want to realize as few gains as possible, you might use uh, these accounting methods depending on what your goals are. The next very important question, perhaps the most important question here is, how are capital gains taxed? As you might have guessed, capital gains are subject to tax inside of taxable accounts. 
what's a taxable account, what's not a taxable account. To be clear, there are no capital gains in 401ks, IRAs, HSAs, or any other qualified or tax-advantaged investing account. Capital gains don't matter there. Capital gains only apply in taxable accounts. The first major consideration in determining a capital gains tax is the duration of holding the asset. If you hold an asset for less than a year before selling it, it generates what's called a short-term capital gain or loss. If you hold the asset for more than a year, it generates a long-term capital gain or loss. Short-term capital gains are taxed as normal income. For many Americans, this equates to a 12 to 24% tax rate. And that's usually worse. That's a worse tax rate than what long-term capital gains are taxed. Long-term capital gains are taxed between 0% and 23.8%, and that depends on the investor's total income. Importantly, capital losses offset capital gains. Going even further, capital losses can even offset some of your normal income, and excess capital losses can carry forward into future years. So, as an example, in a particular investing year, let's say your accounts are down, and you realize... $10,000 in capital losses and $5,000 in capital gains. So not only did the $10,000 in losses completely wipe away the $5,000 in gains, you still have $5,000 in losses left over. If you want to, you can offset $3,000 of your income with the $5,000 in losses. That still means that you have $2,000 in losses that you, you haven't used yet, and you can carry that forward into a future year. Next big question, what assets are subject to capital gains? The most common assets that are subject to capital gains are stocks, bonds, real estate, vehicles, things like that. But other reasonable capital gains assets include gem and jewelry, uh, digital assets like cryptocurrency, household furnishings, gold, silver, and other metals, coin and stamp collections, even something like timber grown on your home property. Now, I'm not saying that every person out there has followed these strict rules as the IRS lays down. If you buy a necklace for $100 and then you sell it 50 years later for $1,000, is the average person out there going to treat that as a capital gain? I'd be surprised, but technically speaking, for the sake of getting things right and getting the facts straight, the IRS does say those are capital gains. Next question, how are long-term capital gains taxes calculated? Long-term capital gains are taxed based on the tax filer's taxable income, not just based on their capital gains alone. And as a reminder, taxable income includes many different sources, including wages, salary, commissions, bonuses, unearned income, such as uh, canceled debts or government benefits, and then the capital gains themselves count as income, as do investment dividends and interest. So what exactly does that mean? Or what are the capital gains brackets in 2023? Well, I'm not going to read out the specific brackets here from this number to that number. You get taxed at 0%. But what I will say is that you can get taxed at 0%, 15%, or at 20%, depending on your total income. So what that means, as an example, here in 2023, if we look at someone who's filing, say, married and jointly, I'm being selfish here because I'm filing my taxes married jointly. If Kelly and I were earning less than $89,250, then any capital gains we realize this year would actually get taxed at a 0% rate. No capital gains taxes. But what happens for most people, not all people, for most people, most people fall in the 15% capital gains tax bracket. For Kelly and I, that's if we earn between $89,000 
and $550,000. That's a really big range. And a lot of people fall in that range. And because of that reason, a lot of people end up paying 15% on their capital gains taxes. However, and importantly, it is vital to realize, especially when people are thinking about retirement, that you can pay $0 on your capital gains. Now, there is a misconception, the, the taxable income versus capital gains question that confuses many people. And some people, including some so-called uh, personal finance experts that I've seen online, they mistakenly think that their first $44,000 in capital gains as a single filer or $89,000 as a married taxpayer, as a married filer, they think that those first chunks of money are not taxed at all. Well, that's only true if someone has no other taxable income. And that's rarely the case, right? Most of us have some form of taxable income. Some of your capital gains might not be taxed, but every dollar of taxable income that you have reduces the chance that you'll be in that 0% capital gains bracket. Other forms of taxable income push capital gains into higher tax brackets. It's commonly referred to as stacking. Michael Kitsis, who's a financial planning blogger, he has a terrific infographic that's in my article that I mentioned before that's in the show note that shows this stacking. You take your income and then you reduce some deductions from that income. Now you have your total taxable income. You have to stack your capital gains on top of that total taxable income. And now you have your total income. The total income number might show you that some of your taxable gains are taxed at 15%. Some of your capital gains might get taxed at 0%. Your normal income that you earned is likely going to be subject to federal income taxes as well, 10%, 12%, 22%, et cetera. Through this graphic, which I do recommend that you guys go take a look at, how someone's income stacks below their capital gains, and that ends up pushing some of their capital gains into the 15% tax bracket. I know that was probably a little bit complicated to listen to, which is why I encourage you guys to take a look at some of the visuals on the Best Interest blog just to make a little bit more sense of it. Next big question, when are capital gains taxes due? Now, you all know that normal income is withheld from your paycheck to make estimated tax payments throughout the year. That's why every two weeks when you get paid or every month or whatever it is, you don't get all of your money. They withhold taxes from you. Capital gains are a bit different. And one of Jennifer's questions that inspired this article, that inspired this podcast, had to do with withholding capital gains taxes, if that's something that she should do. We'll cover that idea below. Now, nevertheless, you should consider making capital gains tax payments on a quarterly basis using what are called estimated tax payments. In other words, if you are realizing capital gains throughout the year, you should not, you should not simply wait for the end of the year to make a large lump sum capital gains tax payments. Instead, you should use estimated tax payments if the following two scenarios are true. First scenario, that you'll owe capital gains tax of at least $1,000 this year. And the second scenario is if your current year's tax withholding is less than 90% of what you owe for this year or less than 100% of what you owed last year. Now, that logic might not quite make sense. The way I described it, or just the way the IRS words it, you almost need an example to understand what's going on there. Tax code usually is confusing like that. And an example, this example specifically, will clear that language up. So let's say last year, John and Jamie, they earned $160,000. And you can plug that in and realize that they paid $20,736 in federal taxes. 
Now this year, their combined salary is $170,000 and they're on pace for a federal withholding of 22,936. In February, John and Jamie sell some assets and they realize $50,000 in long-term capital gains. These capital gains all fall in the 15% capital gains bracket, incurring a tax bill for them of $7,500. And the question is, should John and Jamie make estimated quarterly payments on that capital gains bill? So we have to go back and answer those two questions that we rhetorically asked ourselves before. The first question, do they owe capital gains of at least $1,000? Yes, they do. They owe $7,500. So we know that the first answer is yes. And then the second question was, it's really a two-part question. It's an or question. Is their current year withholding less than 100% of what they owed last year? Well, their current year withholding is 22900 And last year, they only owed 20000 and change. So their current year withholding is more than what they owed last year. So on question 2A, the answer is no. But then question 2B, is their current year withholding less than 90% of what they'll owe this year? Ah, yes, it is. Because what they'll owe this year is 22000 and change based on just their income, plus another 7500 for the capital gains. But they're only withholding the 22000 and change. They're withholding about 75% of what they owe, which is under the 90% threshold. Because they're under that threshold and they'll owe more than $1,000, John and Jamie should be making estimated quarterly tax payments. Those payments are due on April 15th, June 15th, September 15th, and then January 15th. And yes, if you think about what I just said, those four payment dates are not evenly spaced throughout the year. I have no idea why. I'm sure it has something to do with the IRS and, and tax season and that. But again, it's due in April, June, September, and January. The next question, and this comes directly from Jennifer's original question, can I set up withholding for capital gains? Now, withholding is a concept from the income tax world when a final tax bill is predictable based on income. The capital gains world, though, is not so clear. Will there, for example, will there be more gains later in the year? Or will there be capital losses that can offset some of those gains? Will you even owe capital gains or will you fall into a 0% capital gains bracket? For all those reasons, for those questions and the answers to those questions, there is no withholding for capital gains purposes. Instead, many investors elect to create a DIY withholding account to ensure they maintain enough cash to fully cover their capital gains tax burden at the end of the year. Next, what is the net investment income tax or the NII tax? The NII is a relatively recent tax that effectively acts as additional capital gains tax at a 3.8% rate. The NII tax that applies to investment income above $200,000 if you're filing taxes as a single person or above $250,000 if you're filing taxes jointly. So those thresholds mean that NII applies to a portion of the 15% capital gains bracket and to all of the 20% capital gains bracket. So that means effectively, there will be times where a certain investor might realize capital gains and not only do they have to pay the 15% for the traditional capital gains tax bracket, they also have to pay an additional 3.8% for the NII tax. And that effectively means that there are four capital gains tax brackets, 0%, 15%, 18.8, which includes the NII, and then 23.8, which is 20% plus the 3.8 from the NII. 
a common question, a very common question. How should I minimize or avoid capital gains taxes? I'll keep these tips very brief. We can always go into more details in a later episode if any of you guys have questions. First one, take advantage of tax-deferred investing accounts, 401ks, IRAs, etc. Invest for the long term. Avoid short-term capital gains tax rates. Number three, try to offset capital gains with capital losses. Four, utilize tax loss harvesting and carryover losses into future years. Five, utilize tax gain harvesting in low income years. Take advantage of some of those 0% brackets when you can. Number six, use the best capital gains accounting method for your situation. Number seven, wait to die. Seriously, and I'll explain that afterwards. Number eight, asset location. Place your high tax investments in qualified accounts. Place your low tax investments in taxable accounts. Number nine, Use high gains assets for donations. When you have an asset that has a large unrealized capital gain, you can donate it to charity. The charity gets the full value of the appreciated asset and you pay no capital gains taxes and you actually get a tax deduction for making the donation. Or number 10, you can use high gains assets or highly appreciated assets as loan collateral. Many brokerage firms offer loans against shares providing cash liquidity without selling the underlying assets. Now, earlier I mentioned that you can wait to die to avoid capital gains taxes. What did I mean there? Well, under current tax law, federal tax law, if you die and you leave highly appreciated assets to your heirs, no capital gains tax will be paid on the transfer, not by your estate or not by your heirs. And not only that, but your heirs will receive the assets at a stepped up basis. Now, what does that mean? Let's go through an example. Let's say you bought Apple stock in the year 2000 when it was less than $1 per share. Well, today it's close to $200 per share. If you sold today, that huge gain from $1 to almost $200, that gain would be subject to capital gains taxes if you sold it. But if you died today and you left those shares to your heirs, your heirs inherit the Apple shares from you, they inherit them at the stepped up $200 cost basis. If they sold those shares tomorrow, the day after you die, there would be no gains for them and therefore no tax. The IRS would look at those shares and say, well, you inherited them at $200, you're selling them at $200, no capital gains. For that reason, capital gains tax planning is especially important in retirement and older years. Should you sell your assets today and incur capital gains taxes? Or if you're old enough, should you just wait to die? and pass those shares on to your heirs. Now, granted, this area of the tax code, clearly, is hotly debated. I mean, after all, it's essentially tax avoidance. In a way, it's perfectly legal, don't get me wrong, but it's tax avoidance. And it's tax avoidance in a way that is benefiting people who have highly appreciated stocks. What else can you say? Generally, those people are more well off. I mean, they literally have assets that are making them rich and they get to avoid taxes on them. So it's a hotly debated topic. In general, capital gains taxes, that is, you know, taxes on capital, those rates are significantly lower than income taxes. And income tax, that's a tax on labor. And that really is the crux of the debate. Should a tax on capital be less than a tax on labor? After all, every person out there has the ability to put their labor to work and to earn income, but we're taxing that higher than we tax capital gains. So that was your long but hopefully reasonably detailed primer on capital gains taxes. If I missed anything big, 
shoot me a message, jesse at bestinterest.blog. But in lieu of that, we're going to bring on Sean Mullaney to the show. Sean Mullaney, aka the FI tax guy, that's financial independence, FI, the FI tax guy. Sean is a financial planner and the president of Mullaney Financial and Tax Incorporated, which offers fiduciary fee-only and advice-only financial planning. The overlap of investing and taxation is it's wide, it's deep, and it's complex. Sean frequently writes about these topics. His blog, fitaxguide.com, recently won a Plutus Award, which is kind of like the Oscars. It won a Plutus Award for best tax-focused content, and, and rightfully so. With that, let's bring Sean onto the podcast. John, thanks for being here on the Best Interest Podcast. I thought we could start today with the famous Roth versus traditional debate. And I'm hoping maybe you can ground us a little bit in that conversation. But then obviously, I, I want to hear your personal opinion on the topic. Absolutely, Mr. Kramer. Great to be here. <laughs> so Jesse, I think the first thing we have to lay out is this. Having retirement savings, particularly tax-advantaged retirement savings, is a very good thing for one's financial future, regardless of their future goals, their future objectives, right? Let's not go crazy on this Roth versus traditional, right? If we're building up tax-advantaged retirement wealth, we are helping ourselves regardless of future outcomes, and that's great planning. So that's the first basic thing. Now, that said, this Roth versus traditional debate matters because our taxes are one of our biggest expenses. And if there are ways we can reduce those, I think it very much matters. Now, traditional retirement account savings has sort of come in for some criticism lately. You know, folks are worried, oh no, in retirement, you're going to pay all these taxes. Having a traditional 401k, traditional IRA, that's a ticking time bomb. You've got the government, they're a 40 or 30% partner, that stinks. Well, let's step back, okay? We do a traditional 401k at work, mm -hmm. right? We deduct into that. And so many of the audience maybe faces a marginal rate today of say 22% federal, 24% federal, maybe 32%, could be more, right? But I'm yep. talking about sort of the medium yeah, middle, the right? medium of that bell curve for sure. 22, yes. 24, 32. So you put into the 401k and you put say $10,000, you get $2,400 at 24% rate, immediate benefit today, and that's a today benefit. That's not a speculative future benefit. So that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we have to think about what actually happens in retirement. So in retirement, when we're not working anymore, we tend to show artificially low taxable income. We're not impoverished, but if you just start populating a form 1040, you're going to find the numbers just aren't that high. You're going to have some interest income, some dividend income, most Americans don't have a ton of that stuff. And we're, we've been in low yield environments anyway. So they don't tend to generate a ton of that stuff. And particularly before we collect Social Security, but even when we're collecting Social Security, our tax return looks artificially low. So we start taking that money out of the 401k or traditional IRA to spend it, right? All we're doing is spending. We're not doing tax planning. Well, we have a large standard deduction. So some of that money might get taxed at a 0% rate because it's taxed against the standard deduction. All right. Well, that's pretty good, but that's a small amount. Well, then some of it goes against the 10% bracket, the 12% bracket, maybe into the 22% bracket. And so what happens is we want to think about the effective rate on those withdrawals. And I have some blog posts. I can send them to you, Jesse, if you want to throw them in the show notes, if you're so inclined. I've gone through the math on those examples. 
And it turns out in retirement, even relatively affluent people tend to have effective tax rates in the teens, right? And it could even be lower. So why would I forego a traditional 401k contribution at work where I could get 24 cents on the dollar today in order to avoid a tax that's going to be 10%, 15%, something like that in the future? That doesn't strike me as really sound tax planning. And what it means is this, it means traditional 401k contributions really can be very good and very powerful. That said, we, d- we don't always avoid Roth, far from it. So I'll give you two reasons we would do Roth, right? One of those reasons is maybe at home. So you know, I was talking about 401ks, that's a workplace retirement plan. Well, at home, we have something called an IRA. We have the traditional flavor and we have the Roth flavor. For those of us who are covered at work by a 401k or other workplace plan, it's going to be very difficult based on low income limits to deduct into a traditional IRA. And so what that means is at home, our option might be a non-deductible traditional IRA, which I'm not too fond of by itself because we don't get that nice juicy tax benefit up front, or a Roth IRA or maybe something called a backdoor Roth, which I'm sure many of the listeners are very familiar with. So at, at work, when we put it into our traditional 401k, or a Roth 401k, I should say, we're giving up a tax deduction because that's a dollar that can't go into the traditional 401k. The opposite is true at home. If we put money at home into a Roth IRA, we're probably not giving up a tax deduction because we couldn't have deducted into the traditional IRA. So I like this. I sometimes refer to it as dynamic duo planning. Let's do a lot of traditional deductible 401k at work and do Roth IRA at home. Right. So we're setting up some tax free savings for our future. That could help us in the future control our tax rate in the future. And we're setting up these traditional 401ks that in the future might be lightly taxed. So that's one time I like the Roth instead of the traditional at home Roth IRA when we can't deduct into a traditional IRA. The second time is Roth conversions, right? So maybe we get early retired or even conventionally retired and our income's artificially low. And we don't need the money today to live off of. Maybe we do some of these Roth conversions. We affirmatively tax that money. We take it from a traditional IRA or traditional 401k and move it to a Roth IRA usually. And we're affirmatively paying tax. What we're doing is we're picking the time we pay tax because we looked at our tax return. We said, oh boy, that looks artificially low in terms of my income. I might as well fill up against the standard deduction, maybe fill up some income against a 10% bracket or 12% bracket. So yeah, traditional versus Roth has some nuance, but I think out there in the world, there's a little too much fear about future taxes on retirees. I've done the math and it turns out most of the time, retirees are relatively lightly taxed. And that's true even if we increase taxes in the future on retirees. I love where you started this thought process, Sean, which is not missing the forest for the trees in that, hey, if we're talking, if we're debating between two ways of tax advantage retirement savings, it can be a fun debate to have. It can be an important debate to have. But at the end of the day, we're talking about tax advantage retirement savings. It's a great thing to take advantage of these tax advantage retirement savings. So I like that we grounded ourselves there. I also really like the fact that this is such a nuanced conversation. And we have to look at things like an individual's future effective tax rate, comparing that to today's marginal tax rate to understand if traditional or Roth makes sense for them. And and then we get to the conclusion, which is that for most people, traditional contributions make a lot of sense because they can save at a high rate today. You know, I I could save, say, 24 cents on the dollar for $10,000. And then in the future, 
when I take that money out as a distribution for my IRA, that $10,000, if you will, will be spread across many tax brackets, not all in the 24% bracket, but rather filling up my standard deduction, my 10%, my 12%, and thus I'm saving money today and probably going to not have to pay as much tax in the future, hence traditional makes sense. I love the way we grounded that conversation. It is very nuanced. And that actually helps me transition to another nuanced question for you. We had a brief back and forth before about 529 education plans. I know you've got some interesting thoughts there. What are your nuanced thoughts on the 529s? Yeah. So on the 529s, I tend to be nowhere near as fond of them as other folks in the personal finance space. And I've got three reasons for that. The first is the way I approach it is I believe the 529 in so many cases puts a tactic over the goals. So we have to think about, you know, mom and dad are in their late 20s, early 30s, just had their first child. Great. On the way home from the baptism, you'll get a relative in your ear saying, you got to do a 529, you got to do a 529, you got to do a 529. Well, has anybody asked the question, how are mom and dad's finances? The biggest way, the best way you can create financial pain for your child in their adulthood is for mom and dad to not have sufficient financial resources, right? Saving for mom and dad has so many benefits for junior. So why aren't we stepping back and saying, well, wait a minute, what's the profile of somebody potentially contributing to a 529? Oh, it's mom and dad and their late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s, late 30s. And yeah, they've saved up maybe $250,000 for their retirement. Great. They're making maybe low six figures. Great. That's all fantastic. But that doesn't scream to me, okay, you're now in a position to prepay an expense that your child may or may not have in 18 years, right? Mm -hmm. That's not a person who has the affluence and the financial capability to do that, in my opinion. That's a person that should be saving for their own financial future. All right. And I think when we say 529, 529, 529, we're prioritizing a tactic over a goal. So that's the first objection I have to the 529 in many cases. Second cases, the second objection I have is this. I like money that can serve multiple masters. So let's think about money that goes into a 529. That is going to only be for higher education. Generally speaking, you can get some for high school, but let's put that to the side. Generally speaking, that's only going to be for education for your child or potentially a younger sibling. We could change the beneficiary a little bit. We are locking up that money in a way we don't when we do traditional 401ks, traditional IRAs, Roth IRAs, even health savings accounts are actually very accessible beyond their purported lock, right? But when we put that money in the 529, that money now serves one and only one master, generally speaking, versus what if mom and dad say, you know what, I'm just going to save in a taxable brokerage account and I will mentally segregate it as being for junior's college education. But in 10, 15, 18 years, we're going to know a lot more. We're going to know how are mom and dad doing in their own financial life? Is junior even going to college? Is junior on a scholarship, right? And at that time, that money can serve junior's college education, but it also can replace the roof. Maybe half of it goes for mom and dad's retirement and half of it goes for junior's college education. I like having that money where it's not locked up and it could serve multiple masters. The second we put in the 529, we're severely limiting what it can serve without paying ordinary income tax on earnings plus a 10% penalty. So that's the second objection. The third objection I have is the tax break's not all that good. 
what the tax break essentially is, it's a tax break on investment income, right? That's what you're saving when you're putting in the 529. Let's put aside the state tax benefits, which tend to be very modest in most states. Not all states. There are some states where, oh boy, that actually could be in the right fact pattern. We could do some things, particularly when the child is much closer to college age. Mm -hmm. But from a federal perspective, and you got to remember too, a bunch of the folks in the audience live in Texas and Florida and no income tax states. So there's no state tax benefit. But even for those who live in states with state income taxes, outside of maybe a little deduction or credit on the way in, and that tends to be very limited on the state side, federally, all we're saving is taxes on interest, dividend, and capital gains income. And we happen to be living in an era that vis-a-vis the last century tends to be very favorable tax-wise in terms of qualified dividend income rates, long-term capital gains rates, even ordinary income rates on non-qualified dividends, interest income. This tends to be actually a very friendly time in terms of income taxes on investment income. Let's think about, you know, I actually have a infant goddaughter right now. And let's say her parents wanted to put $10,000 into a 529 today for her college. Well, let's compare that to a taxable brokerage account. Even if that taxable brokerage account yielded 5%, which it might not in today's environment, that's $500 of taxable income. And the tax on that federally might be, let's just use 25% round number, which if it's qualified dividend income, that's too high, but Mm -hmm. they've saved $125 this year. And I get it. There'll be more savings in the future. If they just have that in the taxable brokerage account, now that can that can replace the ha- you know, the roof. You know, If the roof blows off, that can do so many different things and it could even support the daughter in different ways. So I just don't see the tax benefit being that good. And oh, by the way, if the money isn't used for qualified education expenses, we're going to have ordinary income on the income, which might've been qualified dividends if it's a taxable account, hmm. plus a 10% withdrawal penalty. So for those reasons, I just think the 529 solves for a problem that's not much of a problem, and we have alternatives available that can still fund college. I'm not saying don't pay for juniors college. I'm just saying remain flexible for your own financial future. That last point, I'm glad you rehashed that again, because you, you did make it clear earlier, but it is worth pointing out that there's a difference between saying don't use a 529 versus don't save for your kid's college. You're not saying the second one. You're saying, eh, 529, the juice might not be worth to squeeze. And I think especially one thing I've talked about before and on the best interest with clients wherever is kind of the cardinal sin of 529s is when you enter that overfunding scenario where yes. somehow, some way, you've got a hundred grand worth of college expenses and you've got two hundred grand in the 529. And you're looking at yourself and you go, Boy, I really want that hundred grand difference back. And, and there's no good way that you can claw it back out. If you can't beat them, join yeah. them. That was an excellent, excellent argument you laid out there, Sean. No, go, go ahead. I know you've got more thoughts. Well, and Jesse, you know, on the overfunding. So now, right, mm-hmm. what happens is shiny objects and personal finance. People who follow personal finance love shiny objects. So Congress added this bailout technique where we can move $35,000 from a 529 to the beneficiary's Roth IRA. And so now I'm hearing like, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Think about it, if you do the 35000 into the beneficiaries 529, by the time they turn 90 years old, they're going to have $1.2 billion in a Roth IRA. I'm exaggerating, but not by much. All right. So let's think about that for a second. I'm not opposed to mom and dad funding Junior's Roth IRA when Junior is in their 20s and helping them build up wealth. 
here's the thing. They don't need an overfunded 529 to do that. They need a balance in their checking account to do that, right? They don't need this hokey thing with a 15-year limit and a five-year limit, all this hokey stuff. An overfunded situation is not a great place to be. Look, if they've got a younger sibling, great. Maybe we change the beneficiary and we address the overfunding that way. Look, I'm happy that, yeah, if, if there's some listeners out there, they've got a daughter who's a junior in college and we're a little overfunded, great. This Roth IRA thing absolutely can be a tool to be used, but I don't see it as in any way as something to be planned into. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. One of the more common questions I hear is, Jesse, what do you like and use? Books, blogs, podcasts, even banks and brokerage firms. What are your recommendations? So to answer that question, I put together a webpage. You can check it out at bestinterest.blog slash recommendations. Again, that's bestinterest.blog slash recommendations to check out how I'm improving my financial life. I like the fact that we're focusing here on good tax planning advice. And it's funny, you use the word there, shiny object. I think a lot of times in this personal finance, financial planning, you know, investment space, investing is the shiny object. The idea of turning $1 into $10 over a decade, I mean, that's cool. Tax planning advice is not necessarily the shiny object, and yet it's very valuable. So I was just curious, do you have any quantifiable examples where person A did all of these things wrong from a tax planning point of view, and it cost them X dollars, or where maybe they did everything right, and it saved them Y dollars? Or if I'm not asking the wrong question, maybe what, what is the right question I should be asking? I will say... This can be very impactful for a number of reasons, right? So that example with the traditional 401k, and we can get 24, 32 cents on the dollar today, and then pay 10 cents on the dollar, 12 cents, 14, 16, 18 cents on the dollar tomorrow. Well, that's setting up a delta, a spread of 10% or more. So we're sort of printing money off the government. That's pretty good. And I think that also says, look, what you ought to do is not focus on getting your deductions this year and, oh, I saved $6,000 on my taxes this year. It's about t reducing total lifetime taxing, eh, taxation. And the way you do that, I think, is a lot largely through these retirement accounts. We take deductions at work. Maybe we put some money in a Roth at home, and we really are saving some money. I'll give you one example, though. This is a quirky example. It deals with employer stock in a workplace retirement plan. They call it net unrealized appreciation. This was a person who was able to take advantage of that strategy. And you, you basically get the gain inside the employer stock inside the 401k can, or other workplace plan can come out into a taxable account, not even an IRA. And then they could live off that. And if they can keep their income below the 12% bracket, they set up what I re was referring to as a capital gains IRA. You take the money out. Yes, you have a capital gain tax on it when you take it out. But if you keep your income low enough, that could be a 0% tax. So all of a sudden, they had money that they deducted into a, a 401k or other workplace retirement plan, and now they're going to withdraw it at a 0% rate. So it could be that impactful. That's just one example. And look, employer stock is something you got to be real careful mm -hmm, with, right? Mm -hmm. The flip of that is the Enron situation. You put all this employer stock in your 401k, and then the company collapses. You lose your job and your balance sheet value. Your income statement and your balance sheet takes a hit. So not something I'd be looking to do, but there are people who have something like that where, boy, if you do the right plan, it can be so impactful. But even for the folks who, hey, I've got a 401k with diversified investments, if I play my cards right, I can set up some real delta, some real arbitrage where I'm deducting higher than I'm re-including in income. 
And it's hard to quantify that, mm-hmm. but that could be in terms of cents on the dollar, that could be some real money where, hey, maybe that's 10 cents on the dollar that I'm printing off the government, right? I'm saving, helping my financial future, and ultimately the government is subsidizing this. That's pretty good. And over long periods of time, we're talking about saving and investing five and six and seven figures worth of money potentially. So if you are saving five or 10 or 15 cents on the dollar multiplied by a big dollar amount, you can just back up the envelope to some interesting savings right there. Yeah. And and some of this is tax insurance. And it's part of the reason, say, I like a Roth IRA at home versus, say, a 529, right? Our investment horizon and our tax risk horizon on our 529, our college savings, is 10 years, 20 years, right? So junior eventually is going to graduate college and we're done with it versus, hey, you know what? If you're a worker in your 30s or 40s today, you could make your 90s, right? So your risk in terms of, well, taxes could change. Well, you've got 50 years where taxes could change against you. So that's that's part of the reason I like a Roth IRA, say more than a 529. The Roth IRA provides tax insurance for so much longer of a period of time. Yeah. And and when I listen to you describe these nuanced corner cases, Sean, and so here I, I work with five CFPs and three CPAs. And sometimes when I hear them talking about some of the tax scenarios they're dealing with, it can be a complicated subject. You just mentioned that some of the people listening here, some of this stuff, maybe it's like workplace stock option plans, you know, it gets a little complex. And yet a lot of our listeners, they are thinking about maybe some DIY tactics that they can implement possibly before the end of this year. So here we are, we're recording on November 14th, 2023. What are some of the lowest hanging fruit that DIYers out there can do in the next few weeks, in the next month, or maybe before the April 15th tax deadline in 2024 to make sure they take advantage of the 2023 tax year? Yeah, I I think, Jesse, the first thing is these retirement savings and health savings accounts, right? Where, hey, you know what? Maybe I haven't been attentive to this. Maybe there's an opportunity to still contribute to these things. Maybe I amp up my contributions before year end. Now, on an IRA and HSA, you can actually wait into the following year. April 15th tends to be the deadline. You just have to code it correctly, right? So if you're sitting there in March of 2024, you want to make an IRA or Roth IRA contribution for 2023, just make sure you code it correctly as being for 2023, because otherwise the institution is going to treat it as being for 2024. One thing that exists out there, there are folks with appreciated stock positions, right? So this happens because maybe I have an employer, like you were saying, stock option plan or other plan where I just accumulate stock of my own employer, or maybe there's somebody out there who 15 years ago bought Google stock or Apple stock or something like that. I think JL Collins refers to these as the cats and dogs of our portfolio. And maybe we got a big built-in capital gain in that stock, so we don't want to sell it, but maybe we want to diversify, right? We just like diversification. No offense to that particular company, right? But Mm -hmm. we just like diversification. Mm So we could do some things, some called tax gain harvesting. If our income's relatively low, we could sell and reinvest at a 0% long-term capital gains rate. The other thing is the donor advised fund, right? So many of us have charitable intentions. And hey, you know what? Why not set aside some money where that money will eventually over time, in a way I control, go to charity, right? But I don't want to give it all to charity right now. And I'd like a tax deduction right now. So the donor advised fund is a great tool to facilitate that. And that can be DIY, right? So what you do is you see, hey, you know what? I'm sitting on XYZ stock. It's got this big capital gain. I don't want to pay capital gains tax on that. 
So I just open up a donor advised fund and do a in-kind transfer of those shares into the donor advised fund. And that achieves two big things and even a third small thing, right? One is it excuses that capital gain from tax for all human history. So that's really cool. Two, it gets me a nice juicy tax deduction this year if I can get it done in time, right? So that's really nice. And then three, the money can sit in my donor advised fund for a number of years. There's no deadline on when it has to go to charities, but over time, I'll just dole it out to my favorite charities. And it can make a little income. Usually, the donor advised funds might give you like a dozen mutual funds you can invest that money in. That money can grow. That money can actually make some money inside the donor advised fund and eventually go to charity, but you're not taxed on it. So it's another little mini tax shelter there too. So I think the, the donor advised fund, you know, for those of us with big built-in gain positions and in individual equities, for the most part, you shouldn't be given to charity with your checkbook or your credit card anymore. Give to charity with your appreciated stock. Don't sell it first, but give it give to charity through your or through gifts of your appreciated stock. Fantastic. And and I had one more thought for you, Sean. One more kind of big question, and it has to do with year end. Just not this year end. <laughs> it has to do with what you and I know is happening at the end of 2025, about two years away, or at least what's currently planned for the end of yes. 2025. So I haven't yet spoiled what exactly is going to happen, and I, I kind of want to put it on you. Can you explain to our listeners in, in a quick nutshell what is going to happen at the end of 2025? And then I, I almost I want to go through some of the basics. Who needs to worry about it? What should they be worried about? What can or should they be doing now to prepare for this big change? Yeah. So if we look at the Internal Revenue Code, there are um, certain favorable tax provisions, right? The high standard deduction, 12% tax bracket something called the qualified business income I've written about, right? The estate tax exemption, which is very high right now, scheduled right. to be almost halved, I believe, in 2026. So if you look at the way they write the tax laws, sometimes what they'll do is they'll cut taxes, but they'll say, oh, that's a temporary tax cut. And the reason they do that is because it's scored, it's the machinations of how Congress scores these tax bills. So yeah, if we just look at the Internal Revenue Code, which governs tax in this country, we're going to see, oh boy, in the year 2026, all these taxes are going up. And to my mind, if I were a betting man, and look, all free predictions guaranteed wrong or your money back. But if I was a <laughs> betting man, I would say, look, I think Congress in the year 2025 is going to extend these tax breaks. Uh, okay. So when I approach planning, I say, look, Congress has the incentive to extend these tax breaks politically. For example, retirees would be hit pretty hard if these tax breaks are not extended mm -hmm. and retirees tend to vote, right? So Congress <laughs> sure. has every incentive in 2025 to extend them. Now, if you disagree with my take, then when you were doing, say, your year-end Roth conversion, say you're early retired right now, what you might want to do is do more year-end Roth conversions right now if you disagree with my take because you say, well, boy, you know, in 23, 24, and 25, I'm going to have a lower tax bracket. But in 26, it's going to go back up. And so that's going to be a worse time to do Roth conversions. So, you know, I think you have to do your own assessment. Look, Jesse, we're not here to give financial or investment or tax advice to any individual out there. We're right. here to provide Correct. educational knowledge. But I think if you say, if you take my approach, you say, oh, I'm not too worried about that, then yeah, you proceed as you normally would. If you say, hey, you know what? I don't think Sean Mulaney's right on this one. I think these taxes are going up. Well, boy, then I might want to do some more Roth conversions before year end. Now, let me say, though, if you're in your high working years, the taxable Roth conversion is probably not the thing to be doing, right? 
you don't want to be creating taxable income in your highest earning years, generally speaking. I like it. Tax changes are scheduled to happen. The jury is still out as to whether they'll happen on time or, or at all. And then, as always, on an individual basis, these are the kind of questions that we can provide blanket information on, like, well, if you know your tax bracket's going up, it might make sense to move income into current years as opposed to postponing it out to future years. But even then, it's it, it almost gets back to one of our earlier topics, Sean. What we're talking about here is something that is scheduled to occur over the next three years. Is my math right there? I think it is. Over the next three years, let's say, based on the current schedule. Proper tax planning isn't necessarily a three-year exercise. We, we should think about it in decades at a time, if we can. And that gets back to this whole conversation about financial planning is a, is a long-term game. And you're thinking about dollars today, dollars tomorrow, and, and dollars for the rest of your life. And if you're only zoomed in on the current 2023 tax year or 2023 through 2026, that might not be a, a big enough story. I think that's right, Jesse, right? I think the most impactful financial planning in terms of tax planning is that planning that aims to reduce total lifetime tax. And I think that's the lens at which you have to look at it, not necessarily, hey, I got this great juicy tax deduction this year. Maybe it is. You know, in, in some cases, that could be true. Maybe it's a great donor advised fund contribution at the end of this year. Maybe that is the right answer in your particular case. Who knows? But I think what the most impactful planning is doing is it's increasing our chances of financial success regardless of future outcomes. So what we're trying to do is just identify those behaviors and tactics that increase our chances of success regardless of future outcomes. And that is really a, a lifetime exercise, not necessarily a this year, this year, this year, I got to get that deduction this year exercise. I think everybody needs to press the rewind button once or twice and listen to that 30 to 45 seconds all over again, because that clip right there, Sean, it was perfectly said, very much perfectly said. Now, Sean, I know you're, you're writing, you've appeared on other podcasts before, you're on some social media outlets. I assume some of our listeners are going to want to reach out to you. They're going to want to start following some of your, not necessarily individual advice, but smart, general conversations that you have. How can people find you? Thanks so much, Jesse. So folks can find me on my blog, phytaxguy.com. I'm on uh, Twitter at Sean Money and Tax. And then I've got a small YouTube channel, Sean Mullaney Videos. Awesome. We will throw those links into the show notes. Sean Mullaney, the Phi Tax Guy. Thanks for coming on the Best Interest Podcast. Jesse, thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.